With that, let us turn to our passage today, which comes from Psalm 121. The passage for today is Psalm 121. This is the word of God. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our Sunday teaching series on the Psalms. And we are looking specifically at how God's people learn to take their feelings, their emotions, and they take them back to the Lord. How they avoid the two extremes of, one, uh, just ignoring those feelings, stuffing them down, pretending that that's really not part of what it means to be human, or on the other side, giving into those feelings, treating them like they're the most important, most authentic part of what it means to be human. Instead, what do God's people do? They bring that feeling, that emotive response to life to the Lord. They bring it in prayer, they bring it in song, and they think about it. They allow him to interact with it, with what he said, with who he is, and then they take that feeling as it's renewed, restored, and they respond back to life with this healthier emotion. Now today we're going to look at the emotion of confidence, that feeling of being able to move forward in life with certainty. That sense when you look down the road and, and you might see some trouble spots coming or you anticipate that the road won't be easy, but you move forward anyway. You're not backing down from what you see, you're not pulling away, you're not living like a turtle, ducking your head inside your shell. You are not paralyzed by what you see coming, you're not fearful. But you're also not the flip side of fear. You're not arrogant. You're not presumptuous. You're not believing that nothing can touch you and that you just ignore the very real dangers that are out there. Instead, you live in that sweet spot. You're not cowering from life. You're not blundering through life. Instead, you're moving through life confidently. And you move through life confidently because you know that what you have built your life on, what you're trusting in, is solid enough to support what you're trying to do in life. Now, if you're going to live confidently, Psalm 121 says there are three things that you have to know. First, you have to learn how to think intentionally about what it is that you're trusting in to get through life. Because you realize there's a lot of options out there. All those options, however, are not all equal. All of them have different impacts on you. And so you first have to think carefully about what it is that you're relying on. Second, if you want to live confidently, you have to know what you need. Because each of those things that you could rely on offer you a different kind of help. So what is it that you actually need to live well in life? What kind of help do you need? It's the second thing that's essential to know. And then thirdly, to live confidently, you have to know that you actually can expect to get that help. That that help is not just out there in a generic kind of way or that it's not out there for other people, but that that help is actually for you personally. So number one, we're going to look at what are you relying on? Number two, what kind of help are you looking for? 
And then three, how do you know that that help is for you? So first, what are you relying on? The psalmist starts in verse one by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And get the picture here. This man is standing there looking around, recognizing that he needs some kind of help. We don't know what's going on. We don't know if he's in trouble right now or if he's anticipating that he's going to be in trouble at some point. But he's reflecting now on what he's going to need in order to get through whatever this is in front of him. He's reflecting on what kind of help he's going to need. Now, if you read the title, you learn that this is a song of ascents, meaning that it is a section of the book of Psalms that the Israelites would sing as they made their way to the temple in Jerusalem during one of the annual fe festivals. And the temple was located on the highest point of ancient Jerusalem. It was on a hill. That hill was called Mount Zion. And so you had, had to ascend. You had to go up to meet with God. It's a song of ascents. It's a song of going up. But this psalmist isn't there yet. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not looking at the one hill that the temple is sitting on. He's looking at multiple hills. And he knows that this journey that's in front of him is not going to be easy. That verse 3, his foot could slip. That verse 6, he's going to be exposed to the weather and other natural elements that could hurt him. In verse 7, that there is evil that's always lurking out there. And it's lurking especially in the dangerous hill country. So what is it that's going to get you through all of that? How will you move forward confidently? And the psalmist recognizes there's a variety of options here. He doesn't say, I lift up my eyes to the hill, the one hill of Zion where the presence of God is. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, plural, not hills, singular, to the hills. Why is that? Well, in Israel, there were competing religions, competing offers of help. There was the one true God who was worshiped at Jerusalem on Mount Zion, but there were also places called the high places. They were spread throughout Israel, places located in the hills or along ridgelines where you could go to worship other gods, where you could go to get a different kind of help to live through life. And so the psalmist is contemplating his life on what he's about to do, this journey that he's on, and he's asking, what am I going to trust in to get through this, to get me through life? What can I depend on for that help? To which one of these hills should I orient myself? Which one offers the kind of help that I think I need? Which one of these hills deserves my allegiance? To which one should I give myself? They're all different. The kind of help that they offer is different. So which one should I rely on? Which one is at the heart of all that I am and at the heart of all that I do? From which one comes my help? Now, let me invite you to please be careful here, because in our secularized age, we tend to think of these kinds of questions as religious, religious questions, philosophical questions, questions of ultimate meaning, questions that are interesting to ask, good to ask, but questions that have relatively little impact on day-to-day -day life. And so they get relegated to religious times, to Sunday morning, to times with your community group, times when you're around other religious people who like to talk about these kind of things. And yet, once you leave those settings, these questions tend to drop off your radar because they don't really seem to have a whole lot to do with daily life. That's the secularized way of thinking about these, which is actually not the way that life works. It's the other way around. Because it's a question of ultimate meaning, it affects all of life, and you realize that people are asking these questions all day long. Listen carefully, and you hear people ask this question every single day. They are asking, from where does my help come? 
What will guard me and protect me in this crazy world? I mean, it's very easy right now, right? You listen to the news, and it's obvious that this is uppermost in people's minds. And so they're asking, where will my help come from? Will it come from the medical community? Will my help come from the epidemiologists? Will it come from the economy? Will it come from our government? From where will my help come? What should I put my confidence in? What's going to allow me to move forward in life confidently? It's a question that we ask all the time. However, it's a question that we're not always aware that we're asking. Most of the time, we've already made up our minds as to what we're trusting. Most of the time, we've already decided we know what will help us. And so we fall into trusting that answer without testing it, without being critical to see if it's actually going to hold up or not. There's an author, David Foster Wallace. He gave a commencement speech back in 2005, and he showed how we slide into trusting things without actually knowing that that's what we're doing. Now, Wallace was not a Christian, but he recognized that every single person orients themselves around something, orients themselves to something, that they look to something to give them help. And he recognized there's lots of things that we could look to for that help, and that every single one of those will impact your life in a certain way on a daily basis. I'm going to read just a portion of what he said. Quote, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Again, remember, he's not a Christian. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. These forms of worship are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing." Unquote. Wallace just said, this is what happens when you don't ask the question, from where does my help come? You're still going to find something to worship, something to believe in, something to trust, something that's going to give you the help that you think that you need. You're not going to be able to help doing that. Looking to for help in this life, you've got a really good chance of worshiping something that's going to hurt you. And the psalmist knows it. He knows there are all kinds of things out there to worship, and he's asking himself, what's really going to help me in life? Who will help me? What will I rely on? I'm singing this song of ascent. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to meet with God in his temple, and yet I know something. I know I could drift. I could trust something other than him to try to make my life work. And I don't want to. I don't want to drift. I don't want to look for help from something, money, power, beauty, sex, my intellect, something that's only going to end up destroying me. And so I have to do something. I have to do the hard work of thinking of thinking about my life, of thinking about the choices that I make 
as to what I'm going to trust. Because if I don't, I know that I will not be able to make it through this journey called life. I will not live confidently. I'm going to be constantly frightened. I'm always going to be second-guessing myself. I'll be pulling back, be afraid that I'm going to lose what's most important to me. I'm going to be afraid that someone, something's going to be able to take it all away from me. Now, what's this look like for us in our present moment? I think there's a lot of people that in this present moment are not handling it confidently. And maybe it's a time to take a step back and ask the question, if you're one of those who's not handling it confidently, from where does my help come? What have I been hoping would guard and protect me? What have I been looking to for help? Because if you're anxious and nervous that something could happen to you now or something could happen later in life that's going to ruin your life, you need to ask the question, from where does my fear come? Is it possible that that fear is tied to something that I was trusting to give me a good life. Something that I thought would help me that isn't. Something that's now eating me alive. And that's part of why this psalm is in scripture. It's to reorient you as you go through your journey in life. It's working to take that question out of the background noise and put it right in front of you and call you to ask, from where does my help come? Because if you don't do that, you're going to unintentionally slide into something that's actually going to hurt you. That's number one. If you want to live confidently, you have to ask on a regular basis, what am I relying on? Second, if you want to live confidently, you have to know what you need. You have to know what kind of help you need. Now, I know that on the surface of it, that seems like a really obvious answer to that question. You, you think, well, to live confidently, I need to know that nothing will ruin my happiness. I need to know that I'm going to have a safe, happy life, that I'm going to be protected from all kinds of stuff, from personal accidents, from impersonal forces of nature, storms, drought, plagues, wildfires, from evil in any form that it takes. I mean, that's what it takes to be happy, right? If, if I was certain that I'd never have to deal with any of those things again, I'd feel confident. Right? That's the way we think. And then you look at this psalm, and it seems to say that that's actually what God is offering you. God promises, verse 5, that the Lord is your keeper, that verse 7, he'll keep your life. Now let me take a little aside here, because that's a really important word in this psalm, that word keep. It shows up six times in eight verses. God says something about keeping you in some way or other throughout the entire psalm. It's the primary theme of the psalm. But that word is a little masked by the English word keeps. The Hebrew word is much more robust. It brings in the idea of watching over you, guarding you, attending carefully to you. One English translation uses the word protect. I think it's a really good word here to get the sense of the meaning. And in that sense, verse 5 then would read, the Lord is your protector. Verse 7, he will protect your life. His protection means, verse 3, that your foot won't slip. You won't have accidents. Verse 6, that you'll be protected from those destructive natural elements, as well as, verse 7, protected from all evil. No, no accidents, no natural, no supernatural harm. And you think, that sounds great. That sounds exactly like what I need. That's going to give me a good life. It almost sounds like God is saying, let's make a deal here. If you orient yourself to me, I'll give you the life that you want. I will protect you from anything bad ever happening to you. Sounds like a great deal. It's just not true, and it's not what the psalm is actually trying to teach. I'll show you that in a moment. 
But you also know that it's not true just by looking at the lives of God's people. God's people have never believed that that's what God is doing, that he is offering a deal. Worship me, I'll give you a great life. All you have to do is spend some time reading church history. The martyrs, those who died for their faith in Christ, they never believed that. They believed instead that if they sought God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, if they only relied on him, that meant they would suffer. And they'd probably die before their time. Now, why did they believe that? Well, it's because the apostles and the early Christians believed that. Read through the book of Acts. What do you learn there? You learn that the early Christians thought it was just reasonable. They expected that obeying God meant that life was not going to go smoothly. That God did not promise to protect them from all the things that they were going to face. Think, okay, well, why did they think that? Well, it's because Jesus thought that. His life was anything but smooth. He knew what it was to be exposed to the elements. He was out in the wilderness. He lived traveling with no place to call home. He faced damaging elements completely unprotected, faced evil, personally tempted by Satan, constantly challenged by the religious, the political establishment, until they what? They arrested him, tortured him, and killed him. Jesus' life was just plain hard. He obeyed God completely, never once put his foot wrong, only directed himself toward one hill, and he had a really hard life. And yet Jesus never acted like it was a miserable life. He never acted like God had cheated him, like God gave him a raw deal, like God was unfair to him. He never came to him with Psalm 121 and said, look, you promised to protect me. Why are you not keeping your end of the bargain? Instead, Jesus moved confidently through all of those hardships like they were normal. Now, why did Jesus do that? Well, you can go back a little bit further. It's what was true of God's faithful prophets, those who were stoned and killed before Jesus was born. It was true more generally of God's people as you walk yourself all the way back through history. It's one of the things that Hebrews chapter 11 tries to point out. You learn there that a number of God's people chose hard things in life. They didn't choose to avoid those things. They understood that they had to go through those in order to get to God. Verse 35, some of God's people were tortured, refused to be released, so they might have an even better resurrection. Or Moses, verse 25, he chose to be mistreated along with God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Abraham, verses 9 and 10, he chose the relative discomfort of living in a tent instead of a more comfortable house because he was looking for something here that you cannot find here on earth. He was looking for a better city than any house on this earth has ever been part of looking for a heavenly city, not an earthly one. He's looking for a better place to live because he was looking for a better kind of life. See, God's people have always understood that choosing God and his purposes means that you cannot avoid bad things happening to you. But God's people also understood that none of those things will be able to keep you from God. And they believe that even when those bad things happen, that you actually have made out on the deal, that you got a much better deal than you would have otherwise, because why? You get God. You get God in this world and in the next. Now, why is it that that is such a great thing to have God? It's because God does not live on the top of a hill. This is the God, verse 2, who made heaven and earth. You're coming to the one who made the hills. You're not coming to one who's going to hurt you and eat you alive. You're coming to one who made everything that there is in this world, who gave you all of the things that you think are so great that you're tempted to put your confidence in them instead of in him. 
you're coming to this one who gave you an intellect that lets you think, lets you work out, really, what, what's important in life? What should I be trusting? You're coming to the one who gave you the goodness of friendships and relationships that'll walk with you through life. You're coming to the one who has filled this world with sweet things to enjoy while you're going through life, who gives you food and sex and hobbies and sports, music. Why would you set yourself on a path to this one, even if that path is more difficult? It's because of how amazing he is, how much more amazing he is than anything that he's made, how all of these things that are all around us that we love are just little offshoots of who he is. See, this is not a God that you want to journey to for a festival, spend a couple days with once a year. This is a God that you want to journey to your entire life so that you end your life journey with him, so that you arrive with him, so that when your life is over, you end up where he is. And that's what this psalm is promising you. That's the kind of protection that God is offering in Psalm 121. Look at verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The key there is in that last word, forevermore. God is not working within the confines of time. We forget that. We've bought into, again, another secular notion that this life is all there is. And so we believe we have to have it all right now, or at least as much as we can possibly get, because once we are gone, we don't get to have a good life. And so we look for temporal happiness, not eternal happiness. We don't really believe that eternal happiness is so great, so powerful, so wonderful, so amazing that one second of it will instantly dissolve all the temporal unhappiness that you've ever had or ever experienced on this earth. We get stuck, we get fixated on being as happy as we can for what, for 70 years, 80, 90 years. And we think that that's the time frame that God works with. If you wanna understand God's promises, especially his promise to guard you and to give you a good life, you have to think longer, bigger, outside the confines of time. You have to learn to think like Jesus thought. See, if God is making blanket, temporally bound promises, then Jesus should have expected a secure, comfortable life. And yet Jesus expected exactly the opposite, and he told everybody, I'm expecting the opposite. I expect to suffer. I expect to be turned over to people who are going to torture me and kill me. But he also expected something after the suffering. He expected to rise from the dead. He expected to be then in the presence of God for how long? forevermore. It's that word there at, that ends the psalm. He expected that the hard things in this life would not have the last word on him because God had promised forevermore protection. That's the kind of help that God offers, that he will make sure that whatever happens to you on this earth, that it will not keep you from him. That's his guarantee, to protect your journey to him from this time forth and forevermore. He's promising that nothing that happens to you, personal accidents, damaging nature, evil itself, nothing's gonna keep you from him for eternity. Nothing will happen that can threaten your eternal happiness. The God who makes the hills is gonna to see to it that whatever happens on the hills will not keep you from him. Now I wanna urge you to wrestle with this because some of you have the wrong time scale in mind. Some of you are not thinking correctly about time. And so you're anxious. 
you're worried. You're working harder to avoid something unpleasant on this earth than you are working to get as close to the one who made the earth. You think there's something here that can actually keep you from having a great life. You think that there's some setback at work, a relationship that's gone awry, a virus, an accident, an illness, a mistake you've made. You think there's something here that can keep you from having a great life. And you've forgotten that a great life is not defined by 70, 80, or 90 years. It's defined by an infinite number of years. God's working with a different time frame than you are. And the psalmist understands something that you've forgotten. He understands the truth that every one of us leaves this planet sometime. Therefore, the kind of help that you need has to be greater and more enduring than anything that you find on this planet. The help you need has to be able to take you into eternity if it's going to be of any value to you. The only one who can give you that kind of help is the one who stands outside of this world and outside of time itself. If you have that kind of help, if you have his kind of help, that actually starts to work its way back into time. Because then you start to live confidently in this world, regardless of what this world throws at you, because you know that nothing here is big enough, nothing strong enough to threaten him. And if it can't threaten him, it can't threaten his plans for you. It can't threaten what he does for you. It can't undo what he does. That's the kind of help you need if you're going to live confidently now, the kind of help that will still be around even when you're not. So first, if you want to live confidently, you have to keep asking, what am I relying on? Second, you have to know what kind of help you really need. And then third, you have to know that God is actually willing to give you that kind of help, that he's willing to be your protector. I think that's a real question, right? Because if God really is the one who's made heaven and earth, the one who can conceive and create the near infinity of this universe, why should he care about you? Your life is what? It's this tiny little blip. Flashes on, flashes off. You live on a planet that's no more than what? It's, it's a speck of dust. It's on the edge of a galaxy. A galaxy that at last estimate is one galaxy out of two trillion. Two trillion galaxies filled with stars. So many stars that Glenn Mackey of the Swinburne University of Technology in Australia has estimated that Carl Sagan was right, that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the Earth. Let that sink in, more stars in the universe than grains of sand on the Earth. That's to say nothing of the planets, the planetoids, the asteroids, the comets, everything else that's out there. How can you dare to believe that that God who made all of that notices you? How can you dare to believe that he cares about you, much less that he's ready to bend all that incredible power on your behalf to guard and protect you, to give you the help that you need? How can you believe that? It's something here that's hidden in verse 2. Psalmist asks, where does my help come from? And he answers, it's from the Lord. Now, this is hard to see in your English Bible, but if you look closely, Many of your versions will capitalize all the letters in Lord. The O, the R, the D, they're often in a smaller font, but they're still capitalized. Why is that? It's because Lord here is not a title. It's a name. Specifically, it's God's name. When he appeared to Moses and told Moses to go talk to Israel's elders about him, Moses 
said to God in Exodus chapter 3, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God told Moses, I am, that's my name. I'm not generic, I'm personal, and I wanna be known personally. I don't want you to simply call me God as though I was one among many. Here's my name, I am. Now the Israelites wrote that down as Yahweh. Whenever you find that in the Hebrew Bible, it gets translated in English as Lord, all caps. Now notice something here. Notice that God waited to reveal his name. He didn't tell this name to Adam. Didn't tell this name to Noah. Didn't tell this name even to Abraham, his friend. He waited to tell the, his name at the point when he was about to rescue is, Israel, to save them from slavery. At that point, he told them his name. Now, you don't tell people your name unless you're expecting some kind of relationship with them. And the name that you offer to someone else tells you something about the kind of relationship that you want to have, whether it's a more formal name or, or a more informal name. So when God tells them his name, he ties it to what? To his rescuing activity, to his saving activity. And he saved them because he said, I am calling you out to be my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's personal. And to help you understand how personal it is, here's my name. I want to have a friendship with you. I want nothing in between us. Israel is very special to him, but it's not Israel in general who's special. It's each person in Israel. That's why Psalm 121 is not written to the nation as a whole. It's couched in very personal language. The whole Psalm is written in the first and second person singular. Go back through, look at all the pronouns. I, my, you, your, they're all singular. God doesn't relate to you as a mass of people. Yes, verse 4, he protects Israel, the nation, but he does so in order to protect you, the individual. The psalm is an invitation to read it as God offering to protect you. He's not offering an abstract, impersonal set of principles. He's not offering good advice for living life. He's offering a connection, a relationship. Now, how do you let that reality sink in? How do you get past your smallness? your insignificance in the cosmos? How do you get to the place where you know that you matter? It's something you have to experience. It's not enough to come to this passage and say, okay, now what are the truths that I need to know? Okay, good, I've made my list of truths. I can close this, now I can go on. You have to experience this. You have to have the sense that God is talking to you directly. You have to have the awareness that he's connecting with you. That even though you are not the center of the universe, even though that you are tiny in your own mind beyond imagining, you have to know that you matter to him greatly. That he wants to share himself with you, not just later on in eternity, but right now. You have to know things like when Jesus talked about himself as a shepherd in John chapter 10, he said his sheep know something very important. His people know something very important. They know his voice. They know what he sounds like. How do they know what he sounds like? He makes sure that they know what he sounds like. They experience him. Romans chapter 8 tells us that God's children have his spirit inside of them, and they cry out to him, Abba, Father. There's something inside of God's children that knows that God is not remote, 
He's not distant. He's not far away. He's not too busy for them, not unconcerned about them. He's personal. So personal that they call him daddy, and that just doesn't sound strange. It doesn't sound weird. They experience relating to him. That's why places like Psalm 34, verse 8, urge you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Experience, connect, relate. Stop holding him off at arm's length. Come near. Realize that he's personal, that his protection is personal. If you don't experience him, or if you don't experience him as good, you're not tasting him, you're not relating to him, you're not connecting, you're not actually doing what he's given us the psalm for. Now, why is that? Well, it might be because you've put your confidence in another God on another hill somewhere. Or maybe you've set your heart on having some other kind of help other than what God offers. You haven't wanted him, you haven't wanted this God who reveals his name to his people. Or maybe that you've done things that you're ashamed of. Things that you think are too ugly, too awful for him to actually want you. You haven't really believed that he wants to rescue you from those things just as badly as he wanted to rescue Israel from slavery, from the things that caught them that they couldn't get out of. And so you think to yourself, okay, I, I believe that God wants to save people, people in general. I believe that God loves people. It's just me that I'm not all that sure about. I don't know that he really wants to talk to me that he really wants to listen to me, that he wants to hear from me, that he wants to rescue me, that, that he wants to protect me. When you think like that, it's time to go back to the gospel, to realize what it cost our very personal God to protect you, that per to protect you, Jesus had to be unprotected. And so Jesus did that. He exposed himself to the miseries of this world. He exposed himself to pain to sickness, to hunger, to thirst, to temptation, to evil. He exposed himself to all those things. He walked around on this earth unprotected. Those things touched him. But those miseries were nothing compared to how he exposed himself, left himself unprotected to God's wrath. Jesus knew where his help came from. He knew which hill to orient himself to and which hill not to take a single step away from. He lived his entire life obeying God, relying on God, wanting God, wanting only God, and wanting the help that God provided. But Jesus' people didn't. And so they had to be protected. They had to be protected from themselves. They had to be protected from God's wrath. They had to be protected from every time that they rejected God's personal invitation to know him personally. They had to be protected from every time that they thought an alternative to God was better from every time they thought a substitute out there would give them a better life. They had to be protected from God's wrath for choosing a different God, a God that in the end would actually eat them alive. And so Jesus did what no one else could do. He did not destroy his people. He didn't eat them alive. Instead, he exposed himself to his people's sin. He took it on himself so that there were no barriers between him and his people's sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became their sin, who knew no sin. And then he stood there covered in sin and exposed himself to the Father. That's a dangerous thing to do. In the temple, there was a curtain that stood between God and his people. 
And the curtain was there so that his holiness would not break out against them because of their sin. It protected the people from him and from his holiness. Jesus, sin-covered, stood in front of God without a curtain. Unprotected. And he stayed there on the cross, naked, no covering. Unprotected from nature, unprotected from the mocking crowd. Most of all, unprotected from God's holiness. So that what? So that you would be protected. So that nothing would ever get in the way of you being with him. So that you could stand before God in his holiness, in his presence, and his holiness would not break out against you. Because there was nothing left in you to break out against. Do you really think that Jesus, after swallowing hell into himself for your sake, is going to let anything keep you from him, including your insecurity about whether or not he likes you? Look at what he's done already. Let it build confidence in you. Look at it and go to him. Ask him to forgive you for thinking that anything else in this world could give you a better life than he could. Ask him for, to forgive you for wanting some other kind of protection in this life. And then ask him to protect you so that you can move toward him in confidence that he'll rescue you right now from whatever it is that's holding you back. Right now and forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord God, there are no words for this great salvation. And the only thing that's greater than the salvation is the love behind it that you have. God, forgive me. I don't live in the light of your love near enough. I know my brothers and sisters don't either. Lord, open up a window into our hearts. Give us a taste right now of what that's like, an experience of what it's like to actually connect with you and be with you. Lord, give us confidence that you will make sure that we finally are with you because you will shepherd and protect every step of our way from here until we arrive there. In Jesus' name, amen.